Well, good morning, church. Kids, you may be dismissed. Happy Mother's Day to all you mamas, new mamas, 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 grandmamas, great grandmamas, great great grandmamas. We love you. We hope that you feel cherished, adored, appreciated this morning. I really do hope that you feel that. I hope that you've received that this morning. Saw all y'all eating good this morning. Praise God for breakfast. No, don't praise God for breakfast. That's fine. Um, yeah, that was me inviting you to praise God for breakfast. But if we haven't met yet, my name is Justin. I serve as a pastor here, a pastor to be sent out as a planting pastor of New City Fellowship, a daughter church of Cross Point. Uh, we, we are uh, sort of in the core group launch team phase, meeting on Friday nights. Every Friday nights, we have a Bible study, sort of discovering together if we were a church, what kind of church we would be. And so uh, if you have a free Friday night, I'd love for you to uh, kind of come out and hang out with us. If that's not your deal, but you want to know about how Crosspoint engages in church planting or mission or uh, what Crosspoint does to see the, the gospel advance uh, here in Florida or around the world. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that as well. I'll be over at the Connections desk after service. We're going to continue in our series, Peaks and Valleys, a, a series exploring how we can live out our faith, encounter Jesus, experience true transformation in the highs and lows of life. And I've said since the beginning of this series that it'll take many shapes as the series goes on. Some sermons will be uh, more thematic as we sort of study themes of being in the valley and on the mountain. And other times we will look to the text to see moments in history, actual uh, moments where God's people encountered literal peaks and valleys and glean what we can from that text and it, uh, uh, apply it to our uh, peak or valley and see what God has in store for us. So you ready to study your Bibles this morning? All right, great, me too. Why don't you meet me in Joshua chapter 7, and as you get there, I want to try and frame up our time. This morning, we come down from the mountain we experienced last week and into the valley. Our text finds Joshua and the Israelites fresh off of a miraculous victory over the great city of Jericho, a battle by all accounts they should not have won. Although they had excellent espionage, help from within in Rahab, they followed God's instructions, they still would not have won the war without God's intervention. God literally tore down the mighty, the impenetrable, fortified walls of the city, allowing Joshua and the Israelites to unleash a surprise attack that would not just give them great victory, but great notoriety among the land. Now let this show you, family. 
that when God fights your battles, you inherit the victory. Oh, don't act like you all of a sudden forgot the grace of your salvation. When Christ fought the battle on Calvary for your sin, you inherited righteousness. When Christ fought the battle against death, you inherited everlasting life. This is not a foreign concept. Jesus goes before us, fights our battles, and we inherit the victory. After a siege, of course, there's the question of what to do with what remains. God had specific requirements about what to do with the resources left over from the city. Israel was to keep none of it. They were to burn most of it and it be sacrificed to God, except for the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron. That God would have for himself and it would be stored in his treasury. That's all of chapter six. But now Israel comes against another foe. And it's here that we pick up our text for examination. This historic account, this amazing adventure, this horrible, sad story. I want you to remember, family, something we spoke last week. Sometimes the trials and tests you experience are not always the faith-stretching tests that God would provide for you like we saw in Abraham. Sometimes the tests of life aren't just the rumblings of a world not living as it was made to be. You know, we call that life. Sometimes the tests, the trials, they are of your own doing. Sometimes you brought the valley upon yourself and upon others too. So I want to talk to you from the title, When the Valley is Yours. When the Valley is Yours. And in this text, we're going to see three things. A curse that's here, a cause that's clear, and a cure that's here too. Curse, cause, cure. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I want you, I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you, as we together hear what thus saith the Lord. We're going to read the entire chapter, so buckle up. Joshua chapter 7 reads like this. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up, And spied out A. 
And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack A. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of A. And the men of A killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sheberim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord Jesus said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clan, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by household, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man, and, who, and he who has taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. 
with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent, the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkey and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stone that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your word, the beauty of your son, Jesus, and the blessing of being a part of the church. God, would you speak to us this morning? Would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. I love the look on some of y'all faces. Some of y'all are like, what is he going to do with that? <laughs> that's the first time that's ever happened in preaching where y'all sat down like this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, the NBA playoffs, which are currently happening right now, are incredible to watch. They're fun to watch because of the layout of the tournament. Each team plays their opponent in a best of seven series before they can move on closer to winning the NBA championship. So first team to four wins, wins, right? Now, typically these series of games turn out one of two ways. Uh, there's a very uncompetitive series where a team wins 4 nothing or 4-1. And though the series itself was probably not competitive, the games that made up the series were probably competitive. But there's another way. It's more exciting. It's where it's sort of an eye for an eye where every game the other team makes just the right adjustment to give them the slight advantage. And, and, and now the series goes six or seven games and it's winner go home for both teams. And it's really exciting to watch. But then there's this rare but wonderful thing to watch or frustrating if it's your team. Well, <laughs> Somebody knows where I'm going with this. Where a team goes up 3-1. They're just one win away from winning it. And they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You might have missed that because you're used to hearing it the other way around. They snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. In dramatic fashion, a team up 3-1 loses that series. One of those moments is more memorable than the rest. It's the first and only time that it's happened 
in the NBA Finals, the World Championship Series, the 2016 Golden State Warriors were beating LeBron James's Cleveland Cavaliers 3-1. Steph Curry and the Warriors needed one more win to win the NBA championship when they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. This Golden State team, you need to understand, is undeniably the best team ever assembled. They have done what no other team has done, 73 wins in a season with only nine losses. No other team has accomplished this feat. It's never been done before. This series against the Cavaliers should have been theirs to win. They were up three games to one, but they lost. I share this with you because just like the Warriors should have easily won against Cleveland, so Israel should have easily won its victory against A. But there was a sudden reversal of fate. Things were not going as expected. Tragedy had struck God's people. They were being drawn back. Men were dying. They are losing to a militaristically inferior people. The first word of chapter 7 is the most important word in the chapter to tell us what's going to happen. This three small, uh, this small three-letter word is used to introduce something contrasting what has already been mentioned. This word introduces us our first point of examination. The text uses the word but to tell us that not all things will be well after the great miraculous victory in Jericho. The gladness of victory was soon replaced by the gloom of defeat. Something is wrong. There is a curse here. In chapter 6, Israel comes to win a great victory by the mercy and intervention of God. It was not their hand that struck down Jericho. It was God's. But what Israel failed to see that victorious day in Jericho was that the battle being fought was not merely in the physical, but in the spiritual. Oh, stay with me, church. The battle was not for Jericho. It was for Israel's heart. Israel did not realize that God intervening for them, doing the impossible for them, giving them the victory over a city that would have otherwise demolished them was not for them to find glory in, but to remind them that God is worthy of their trust, their affection, and their obedience. Without these things, Israel would die gruesomely. But with these things, Israel would live to give God the glory as they inherit the fruit of God's provision. God's intervening for Israel should have produced a heart full of worshipful surrender and obedience to God for all of Israel. But that's not what verse 1 tells us. Look at the text. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. In chapter 6, verse 19, 
God tells Israel that all the gold, silver, bronze, and iron that was once Jericho's should be devoted to him. This concept, this idea of keeping things devoted and set aside was to give Israel a live action, real, tangible idea, lesson on holiness or set apartness. This is an idea that God has always in the business, has always been in the business of doing. God takes a group from the whole and makes them his people. Set apart from the other ways of the world. The garden was a place set apart for Adam and Eve. That is, until they sinned, then they were removed from the garden. Noah and his family and any who would believe them were set apart from the rest of humanity and delivered from the great flood. And so on and on it goes. Now Israel is set apart from Canaan. And so God did not want his people, his set apart people, to prosper from pagan riches. So the command was to store it in God's treasury. I'll help you further. Only God can make the unclean clean. Only God can have no impurity take him. Only God can be so pure that impurity itself finds itself pure in his presence. Y'all not hearing me. God wanted Israel to keep herself holy, pure, undefiled. So he demanded that the metals be his. Israel should have had a heart disposition that was obedient to the command. But verse 1 tells us that one man, Achan, did not do this. He took some of the treasure for himself and he hid it away, believing that he could get away with it, believing that because no person saw, nobody saw. And so now, because of his disobedience, God's anger fell upon the whole. Oh, this is good. This is not primarily an issue of sin but the object of Israel's affection. God has proven his holiness. He has proven his worth to Israel by defeating their enemies and then proceeds to give them more examples of abstaining from defilement and maintaining purity with, by withholding them from the riches of Jericho. In other words, God gives Israel himself Perfect, spotless, matchless in power instead of silver and gold that is unclean, which will taint their affections, which will consume them with wanting more, which will have them find fulfillment in it instead of him. God is concerned for his children's hearts. And so it is true of us. We have a God who has fought our battles, who has allowed us the inheritance, the fruit of that victory. We have a God who pursues not just our moral righteousness, but the affections of our hearts. This is why we do not disciple out of behavior modification. This is why when our brothers and sisters sin, we concern ourselves with what takes their affections. We draw them back to what truly 
delights their soul. Joshua was fine to leave the spoils because he knew God was more worthy than silver and gold. Those riches, you need to understand, those riches would have made Joshua a king. Those riches would have made Israel a prominent city in the region. But Joshua's affections were positioned towards God and not positioned toward himself. Achan saw the riches and did not think that God was worthy of it all, but saw himself worthy as some. Achan rationalized his sin, convincing himself that this was not about his affections, but about his well-being. And so he hid the riches under his tent, believing that because his sin was done in the dark, nobody would know or be affected by it. He believes. Only he knows that he took the treasure, but God sees all things. Family, the answer to sin in your life is not fixing your behavior. It's fixing the object of your affections. To Achan, who just experienced the richness of God's presence, who just witnessed the love of God over him, his trust for his well-being was not in God's provision, but in the riches of this world. What happened at Jericho was a, a figuratively spiritual mountaintop experience, testing and stretching his faith in God, and he failed. And now Israel as a whole fails too. Now, all of this is unbeknownst to Joshua or the rest of Israel. Joshua, he's already on the next one. He's, he, as Israel's leader and the successor to the great Moses, has a plan to conquer Canaan. He plans to divide the nation by conquering the southern region first and then overtaking the north in full force. Jericho was just the first step of that plan. He thinks everything is all right. They obeyed God. He trusts his men to do the same. Israel do the same. And so he forges on as a good leader does, preparing for the next battle, sending men to spy on the city of I, of A. His men go and scout and they come back full of confidence and say in verse three, hey man, this, this little old town, this, this ain't nothing for us. Don't even send the whole army. Send, you know, two or 300 or two or 3,000. There's no need to send everybody. It'd be quick work, we move on. And so Joshua, trusting his spies, sends 3,000 men, and then look what happens in verse four. Israel's defeated. 36 of his men are slaughtered. The spies were wrong. They sent 3,000 men to fight 12,000. You have to understand, family, that to retreat from a fight and be chased down was not seen as a logical act of self-preservation from your enemy. It was an act of cowardice. It was seen as dishonoring. You would provoke a fight and not accept defeat honorably? That's horrible. 
the audacity. You have to remember, Israel stormed their gates. Israel's on the offensive. And they just embarrassed themselves and lost their lives in the process. The remaining soldiers return and report what happened immediately. All the energy, all the excitement, all the enthusiasm brought from Jericho has evaporated. There's no hope and all courage is lost. The text says their hearts melted and became as water. How could this be? Was not God for them? Was not God on their side? Was not Joshua's plan confirmed and affirmed by God? How could this little town, this poor excuse of a city, defeat the Israelites? What caused this failure? Well, there's a cause that's clear to us as readers and clear to God as the offended. This is point two. Let's get practical. Look at Israel's disposition. Firstly, their overconfidence. The victory at Jericho had gone to their heads. Joshua's spies' thought process was, we did so well at Jericho, we crushed it, we slew that city, we burned it to the ground, we'll have no problem with A. No, but they didn't do the work at Jericho. God did. So now, now Israel severely underestimates the strength of her enemy and overestimates her own. Notice that when planning for the battle against A, there's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of reliance or dependence on God. They made a fatal error in understanding the enemy's power. How relatable is this to us? We often fail to realize that our enemies are powerful. No? Our flesh is a beast. Our sin, damning. Satan and his angels plot and seek to distract us from fixing our eyes on the goodness of Christ. We underestimate our enemies at every turn. When you sin, you suffer a sort of spiritual defeat. And how often do you sin in the same way? Conversely, by the power of the Holy Ghost, when you overcome temptation and flee from the folly of disobedience, and you run from giving in to the flesh demands, you experience victory. Victory by which you did not obtain on your own, but by the power of God in you. You're not hearing me. You cannot ignore that an aspect of Israel's defeat was due to an undeserved overconfidence to fight their enemy. They assumed that because they had victory yesterday, that victory was promised today. I wonder how many of us put ourselves in environments that are dangerous to our souls. And maybe you withstood from temptation with dependence on God the day before. And so now the battle comes again. And you fight with yesterday's result assumed for today, only to find yourself crushed by the weight of sin. If I'm not talking to anybody in here, I'm talking to me. We must depend daily on the Lord for strength. Paul said it best in Ephesians 6, uh, chapter 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is always 
By the power of God, you will escape sin's snare, the flesh, ferocity, and Satan's schemes. In other words, every victory you experience will be because God delivered it to you. Speaking of sin, that's what is at work against Israel. The sin of disobedience. Isn't it interesting that Achan's personal sin leaves consequence for the whole nation? Now, before I get there, let me be, let me be clear. Achan's sin is his own sin for which he will be punished for. But if you zoom out for a second, the whole reason Israel is taking over the many cities of Canaan is not because God prefers one ethnic identity over another. What a sinful way to read that text, to assume that Israel's war winning is because God's favor is on the basis of ethnicity. No. No, no, no. This is an issue of God's holiness. Canaan being taken over is because of their sin. Israel is the instrument of judgment of which God uses towards Canaan. As it concerns Israel's sin, God is not open to the charge of double standards. He judges the Canaanite and the Israelite the same. The book of Joshua is not a narrative on ethnic cleansing. God does not indulge Israel's sin differently than Canaan's. If the Canaanites are to be judged for their sin and thus destroyed by God's righteous wrath, so will Israel if they adopt the same disloyalty, idolatry, and impurity. If Achan's actions are allied to God's adversaries by appropriating to himself what belongs to Adonai, then Armageddon comes to Achan and his, his ethnicity will be no alibi. Achan's sin is his own, indeed. But the people suffer also. The people suffer the consequence of it. Let this show you, family, that there is no sin, none, that does not have communal consequences. All sin, whether done in the light or done in the dark, will never only affect you alone. It is true that whatever is done in the dark will come to the light. But I like it said this way too, that sin done in the dark is felt in the light. Your sin that you believe is yours and yours alone will always have vertical and horizontal consequences. And here's the thing, that doesn't always mean that everyone affected will know that it's your sin affecting them. But it will. You need to understand that when God saves, he saves the people. I know our Western sociological constructs, this is, this is a difficult pill to swallow. But the reality in front of us is this, God loves you, the individual person, but he saves you to a people. You cannot have a personal relationship with Christ that does not result in you loving your neighbor when you obey God and wounding your neighbor when you disobey God. Achan stole the riches for himself. Wasn't nobody else involved. But God removed his protection from Israel completely. 
And because so, Israel suffers defeat. Joshua and his men are perplexed. Joshua tears off his clothes, puts dust on his head to symbolize distress and mourning, and he falls face down before the ark of the Lord, which was to symbolize God's presence before the people. Joshua took his grief, took his dismay, took all of his emotions, and went straight to God and fell at his presence, and he stayed there until the evening. How many of us, in times of trial and trouble, Run to God with our feelings. When things don't make sense, do you run to God and wait for an answer? Joshua was there, Joshua was there all day asking questions to God. Now, if you read the text, you might be saying, that was a bit of a difficult moment though, No? In the same way, I want to commend Joshua for running to the Lord the way that he does and bringing his trouble before him and waiting, not moving until God answers. We also have to see Joshua's issue here, too, because he doesn't know about Achan's sin. He assumes that the issue is God and blames God for the defeat. He says, why would you bring us all the way over here? only to have us get wiped out. He says, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? I thought you cared about your glory. How do you get glory by us dying? As if to say, we're the only ones you got, God. What are you doing? Don't you care about your reputation? And the Lord replies with a rebuke. He says, get up off your face. Ain't no gentle parenting here. God is offended with Joshua's lack of trust in him and his self-pitying. I love God's reply. Because what comes next is certainly a grace to Joshua. But he's very strong with him. God says, look at verse 11. Israel sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate your people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take the devoted things from among you. God tells Joshua, boy, if you don't get up, I'm not the problem. Y'all are. God tells Joshua what happened and what to do about it. He explains even the reason why it's important. He says, Israel will never be able to stand before its enemies if you attack my faithfulness and reject my holiness. 
because you have appropriated the things that were supposed to be devoted to me to keep you pure, to keep you without blemish to yourselves, you are now devoted to your own destruction because of your uncleanliness. I wanted you clean. You dirtied yourself up. In other words, sin against God demands judgment from God, which manifests itself in destruction. God will not tolerate sin. He says, consecrate yourselves. Be holy just as I am holy, for I am your God. Family, those words from verses 11 through 13 are incredibly important. If you have a highlighter or a pen, Mark this up as if God is talking to you and read these words when you find yourself overwhelmed with sin and look at the kindness of the Lord to give you not just a warning of your path, but a way of escape. Don't you see it? He says, unless, unless you destroy that which makes you unclean. For us, this translates in the practical, unless you acknowledge your sin and renounce it, turn away from it, destroy it from your life. Family, God does not break ties with us. God does not forsake us. But we in our sin actively work against a relationship with him, we break our covenants as an unfaithful spouse does to theirs. And God does not pack up shop in response. He stays and he gives us the just conditions of our return. Oh, praise God that the worst of you would never be rejected by him. But beware that the worst of you longs to be rejected by him. I got to close this up. God is in sovereign control. Don't get it twisted. Jacob is doing things. He's speaking sure, but God is in complete control. His net of judgment is closing in on Achan. Joshua stands as God commands. Joshua speaks as God speaks. The pronouncement of disobedience, the crime that was committed is declared. Now, who is the criminal? Who is the perpetrator? Who is the one who has caused God's protection to leave us? Joshua goes tribe by tribe, clan by clan, household by household, man by man. Achan stands there among the people, the dejected, the scared, the worried, the confused. This is all his doing. And finally, Joshua comes to him. It's written as if Joshua like came to him last. You know what I'm saying? Like he perused everyone, but finally ends up in front of Achan. And Joshua, like a father to a son, says, my son, don't hide it from me. Did you do it? And Achan confesses, it was me. I took it. And you can get it from under my tent. And as the evidence is presented before Joshua and the people, the pronouncement of guilt is passed. Achan is guilty. 
He has sinned against God and sinned against his family. But do not be so confused, church. Achan is not so sorrowful. He kept his secret the moments after he took it. He kept his secret while Israel was spying on A. He kept his secret while Israel lost and 36 men were slain. He kept his secret while Joshua pleaded before the Lord. He kept his secret while every single man was questioned. He kept his secret until it was obvious that he was the only one who could have done it. And so Achan, the gold, the silver, his possessions, his cattle, his livestock were brought to the valley for the judgment of his sin. In that valley, Joshua cried out in pain like a father who raises the rod to his son because he knows that he must. In that valley, the stubborn Achan received the punishment of his sin and was stoned. His possessions burned to ash. He was buried with great big stones, so big that the text says they're still there today. And to this day, that valley is Achan's. It's named after him, the Valley of Achor, to remind those who visit it the cost of your sin. In chapter 8, we would read that God would deliver aid to Israel the next day. And that Israel would go on to win every single battle thereafter. That Joshua would experience a Christophany. Witness Christ in his pre-incarnate form right in front of him. Just as his greater grandfather Abraham did. And Joshua would die. A renowned leader. And a type of foreshadow to Christ as a faithful servant who obeys the will of God. But I understand the feeling you might feel this moment. That doesn't really reduce the shock of what happened to Achan. He was killed for his wickedness. His body destroyed and his belongings reduced to ash. The story of Achan is the story of us if it had not been for Christ. Oh, without Christ, we stand before God with a track record full of hidden and public sin. Without Christ, we deserve the stoning Achan received. Without Christ, all that we've labored for, all that we've worked for, all of our possessions and things serve no purpose and get burned up in ash. Without Christ, we deserve the tomb made of stone, but God being rich in mercy. Oh, church, some years later, there would be another man who would be brought before Israel and its leaders. And this man would not be guilty at all. They would find that there is no sin in him, but Israel would cry out anyway, crucify him. See, there is no place on this earth called the Valley of Jesus or the Valley of Christ. Because Christ had no sin, he has no valley. Instead, they wouldn't crush him on a valley, but they would crush him on a hill. On a hill, the spotless, sinless son of God would be nailed to a Roman cross because of our iniquities, 
Because of our sin, he would die in our place as our representatives and substitute so that we would never suffer the destruction Achan knew, but instead be forgiven and restored. This is always what Jesus did. This is always what he was going to do. And what Achan turned away from was not because he didn't know. You need to understand, he knew the Messiah's movement all throughout history and up to his day. Jesus was and is. And Achan knew this as an Israelite, the firstborn of overall creation. In the beginning, there was only him. Before all things were things, he knew that Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was the promised serpent crusher, promised to his great-grandmother Eve. He knew that Jesus was both the ark and the door. He was the vessel God would use to save the wicked from destruction. And he is the door by which the repentant run through for safety. And if they ever tried to turn back, they would see that the door is sealed so destruction doesn't fall on them and they can't run back to destruction. He is the greater Abraham. Who, in whom all the nations would be blessed. He is the ram caught in a thicket, the sacrifice given in Isaac's place. He is the stairway of heaven that woke up the wicked Jacob in his sleep to find out that Jesus was the only way to God. He is the greater Joseph who would be betrayed by his brothers and be the savior of them too. He is the greater Moses, the true deliverer of his people and from the hand of slavery and death. Can I keep going? Y'all look tired. I should stop there. Oh, I should stop there. No, he's the Passover lamb. The sacrifice taken in place of God's wrath. He's the tabernacle and the mercy seat. He is both the embodiment of God's presence and the blood provided for atonement. And he is the better Joshua who saves sinners and delivers sinners. Both Jesus and Joshua's name means the Lord saves. And just a chapter ago, Achan witnessed the prostitute Rahab be delivered and saved at the hands of Joshua. And so does Jesus with us. He is in the business of saving and restoring poor and wretched sinners like you and me so that when we find ourselves in the valley because of our enemies, we can remember, oh, God has taken care of sin's curse on Calvary and he's taken care of death's sting in the tomb. It is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises us up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus' family. This is the great grace of God, freely given to all who turn from their sin and trust in him. And it is greater than your greatest sins. But let us not forget that God is ruthless about sin. And let us worship in awe and reverence as we see his wrath falling on his own beloved son to secure our soul's redemption. And let us see his continuing grace and the power of the Holy Ghost to enable us to fight the good fight of faith. We need to be ruthless with our greed. We need to be ruthless with our envy, ruthless with our complacency and self-indulgence, our deceit and our disobedience, our lust and our promiscuity. The Lord Jesus 
paid the price through his death on the cross. And God buried our sins deep in the ocean of the sea of forgetfulness. Let us not bury ours under our tent. Stand with me and worship. Ooh.